This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Good morning, you're listening to Pressing Matters, the show where we go behind the headlines and explore issues driving the press. I'm Shazana Mukhtar. In keeping with the year-end spirit of reflection and renewal, today I'm revisiting conversations on the show highlighting ways in which the Malaysian media environment can be made better. The 15th general election brought to light the prevalence of hate speech and disinformation in the country that has simmered under the public radar, but that academics and researchers have long been monitoring. Back in January, I spoke to Tam Dia Vern, researcher at the Centre, on their hashtag TrackerBunchy initiative, which uses AI technology to monitor patterns of hate speech on Twitter. Javern walked me through some of the philosophical challenges that come with studying the underbelly of online discourse. There isn't an internationally agreed upon definition of what constitutes hate speech to begin with. Why do you think it's so hard to come to a consensus on what is hate speech? I think, um, and this is learning from our 2020 study uh, to judge what Malaysians really think is hateful. There's so many languages, um, different understandings and different cultural upbringings of people around us. Therefore, each and every one of them also think about hatefulness differently, right? Something that was definitely hateful to one community, the targeted community, was judged to be less hateful by the others who are not affected as much about it. And we at the center are trying to bridge this gap, right? Um, Even though this is still contentious, uh, still not agreed upon, but we want to try to bridge that that gap. We want to try to bring up more awareness, uh, hopefully more empathy towards one another. So it stems from our different uh, cultural upbringings, the way we're we're raised, our different perspectives. And that does create a kind of um, culture clash, I suppose, in terms of uh, understanding what is what is hate speech. Javin, one of the common arguments or concerns raised when we talk about legislating hate speech is that it infringes on the right to freedom of expression. How do we reconcile the freedom of expression argument with the prohibition against hate speech? I would say this to anyone who says that uh, freedom of speech is definitely a right to be upheld, but it also has to be balanced by our responsibilities towards one another in societies. Um, It cannot be unfeathered uh, if it impacts a person or a community at large to the point of advocating violence towards them. Unfettered, no. Um, When it comes to marginalized communities, there has to be some boundaries we cannot cross. And I'm hoping the way we improve these policies in the future can address this better. Mm. That was Tham Javern, researcher with The Centre. In order to tackle hate speech and disinformation, however, the law is a blunt and imperfect tool. Wajlah Naidu, Executive Director at the Centre for Independent Journalism, spoke to me about the need for the government to urgently abolish laws that can be abused to disproportionately curb freedom of speech. We often live in this environment where there's so many laws uh, basically criminalizing our expressions and our speech. And we need to know that these laws 
are actually uh, a barrier to what you know we mean by promoting free speech. So a legal environment that focuses on reviewing these laws, especially the Communications and Multimedia Act, the Printing Process and Publications Act, the Sedition Act, and many other acts would mean it's the first st uh, stepping stone in creating an environment that actually promotes free speech and it reduces the fear, the fear that we often live in. Mm. And earlier you spoke about um, the issue of hate speech and disinformation. We have seen a lot of that um, in the lead up to GE15 and even after the election results came out. I mean, one of the arguments for retaining some of the um, laws we mentioned is the need for action to be taken against perpetrators of hate speech and disinformation, especially on social media. Um, do you think that we will then need new laws to counter these kinds of media phenomena or is the solution in other forms of policy action? Uh, Shazana, one of my biggest fear is that we would now start talking about new law. Mm. We have to kind of curtail these kinds of discourse because a legal response has never worked, right? And often we see the laws that are in front of us are used indiscriminately and are often abused to censor speech, right? But what we need to do is locate hate speech and disinformation within the current um, landscape, right? And this is not a new landscape. We've gone through decades of race-based polarization. We've lived through divide and rule based on race and religion, right? Now, to break this pattern, th there has to be a longer-term measure to be put in place. Yeah, even the United Nations Rabat Plan of Action on Hate Speech goes beyond uh, or puts in place recommendations that would require the state to go beyond legislative approach, right? One of the first things, actually, that the state could do um, is to set up a multi-stakeholder commission to review it's, you know, the deep-rooted dynamics and cause of, you know, hate speech and disinformation, you know, in Malaysia mm. and provide solutions. Mm. We also require, the state now, the new um, government will, will must invest and engage with various stakeholders, right? The alternative narratives more critical now rather than just restricting speech, mm. right? Mm. And it's also critical to engage with and hold social media companies accountable. Now, I'm not saying that you need to now come up with a new regulation or regulatory framework for social media, but rather to hold them accountable to their content moderation in itself. It requires, again, extensive engagement with the social media companies, right? Mm. And finally, what is really critical is how to educate and create media literacy. I know Dr. Benjamin spoke about it, but media literacy in itself is the one that is going to break, a, break down decades of influence, right? And, and it requires a lot of awareness raising, a lot of investment in educating the public and providing the alternative narrative around unity and harmony, mm -hmm. which is critical rather than focus on divisive language. That was Washla Naidu of the Center for Independent Journalism. The recommendation for the government to use non-legal policy measures to tackle political disinformation was also backed by James Gomez, director of the Asia Center, who shared the findings of research he conducted ahead of GE15. So how robust is Malaysia's legal framework to combat disinformation as it stands? I mean, Malaysia has a host of laws that actually suppress freedom of expression and information sharing. Does this then have the counterintuitive effect of actually feeding disinformation cycles? Because laws themselves are not enough to deal with disinformation. 
the more effective approach for Malaysia, and I think that's where I think uh, the country has you know good potential to strengthen, is the non-legal measures, such as fact-checking, quality journalism, and of course the key thing, media literacy. There were some things rolled out in 2018 in the run-up to the elections, but they were often seen as one-sided because they did not have other stakeholder or community involvement to balance. So they came out being perceived as uh, biased and one-sided pro-government of that time. Now, if we can remedy that and we can take a more inclusive community as well as technology company buy I think we can have a more robust media literacy ecosystem. And I think that's what Malaysia needs to kind of develop. So we need to have a short-term and medium-term strategy. So I think here the election commission is important, that I think it needs to set up some kind of fact-checking center and anything to do with elections. I think it needs to be seen as a source for verified information about electoral process because the electoral integrity and processes is a one recurring pattern that gets hit quite a lot. Mm-hmm. And I think it should have, you know, also the support and buy-in of, you know, election watch NGOs and things like that. So Mm -hmm. there's more legitimacy. Secondly, I think we should have some kind of undertaking for people participating in elections, whether it's representatives of political parties or individual candidates and so on, to get some kind of commitment that they will not engage in the use of disinformation for campaign process. The mid to long term, I think really we are looking at education institutions across the age groups uh, because I think, you know, by the time you just go to tertiary institutions, it's a bit too late. I think you have to start them very young. And there has to be a national process. Uh, Taiwan has rolled out, you know, a national curriculum for media literacy. Some of the other countries are also looking at it. Mm. Uh, so I think um, Malaysia is in a good shape to consider a national media literacy curriculum. Uh, not just in the um, you know education institution, but I think we also need to have something on, on the community. And then uh, the other thing that we encourage is also the whole idea of media ethics. Because media literacy comes after the fact. I mean, the content has been produced. So we are teaching people how to navigate. But it will be even better if we can already ensure the content that is produced is produced truthfully. And here, I think media ethics is important. That was James Gomez, director of the Asia Centre, on measures to counter political disinformation, particularly in the heat of election seasons. We're heading into some messages, and when we come back, how can the government level up standards of the local media industry? Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. Thanks for staying tuned to Pressing Matters on The Morning Run. I'm Shazana Mokhtar. Today on the show, I'm revisiting conversations with experts on ways to strengthen Malaysia's media ecosystem. In September, to mark 65 years of Merdeka and the advent of Malaysian broadcasting, I asked Zaharom Nain, Professor of Media and Communications at the University of Nottingham, Malaysia, on how Malaysian public service media should be improved. Before we go into the specifics of Malaysian public media, could you maybe start us off by helping us understand what exactly constitutes public media? What does this term mean? Well, there is no one definition of public media. It should be public service media. If it's public service media, then effectively it's media that's meant to serve the numerous publics in, in a particular country or nation. Yeah, uh, Public media 
often is just seen as government-owned media, yeah, part of uh, the Ministry of Information or Communications in any particular country, as are some of the uh, organisations we have in the context of Malaysia. I would argue there is no such thing as a public service media in Malaysia. Uh, when they talk about public media, uh, often, and, and rightly so, they talk about the impact of the state on that media or the influence of that state on the media. It's normally... Uh, media that is set up not for profit, but for serving the peoples of, of, of a country, right? Uh, and unfortunately, that uh, role often is just given to governments of the day, believing that all governments are, be are benign. But unfortunately, governments are not benign. yeah. And governments are made up of human beings and groups who want to use whatever they can uh, to effectively influence the people. And the media plays a very, very important role in this kind of situation, together with education, the education system, together even with official religion. So when we talk about public service media, we, that is those of us who, who want a, a strong public service media, we're talking about media that effectively is paid by taxpayers' money. yeah, And therefore, the main role of that media is to effectively benefit the various taxpayers and the, the citizens of that country, not the government of the day. yeah. Um, so when we look at public media, we really should be thinking about who, who benefits from it, who, who the end users are, and that's really um, the people of of a particular country. There's no perfect model per se in existence when it comes to what public service media um, looks like. But from your point of view, I mean, what examples do you think Malaysia should emulate in its public media service delivery? What kind of principles need to be in place for public service media to, to actually take root and flourish in Malaysia? Well, uh, if you're looking at particular institutions or countries, everybody starts, I feel, with the BBC, yeah, uh, because for, for a long, long time it's established itself as independent. It is, you know, uh, authoritative, uh, you know, uh, internationally as well. But uh, there are countries uh, around the world, uh, certainly in Scandinavia, Sweden is a good example. Uh, where such principles of public service are being followed and, very, and, and put across very, very well. In terms of what the ethos of a public service media is all about, well, if one is independence, it has to be independent, independent from governments, independent even from pressure groups. You cannot have a public service media that only serves a particular religious group or, you know, uh, that, that's not the way it is. There must be this kind of ethos and it has to be clearly spelled out right from the beginning. Two, a public service media not only is independent, but will challenge not only governments of the day, but will challenge current perceptions of what society is all about. Yeah, is a media that will discuss, for example, feminism, gender relations, LGBTQs. You cannot push them aside because these are groups and individuals who are part and parcel of our society, like it or not. This learn to discuss this kind of issues, not only discuss from your perspective, but bringing in the numerous individuals and groups that are involved, right? So that, that's the kind of public service media we're talking about. That's inclusive, not exclusive, yeah? Uh, and third, they should be freely available to the, to the public, yeah? Underlying all of that must be this idea that 
advertising or groups cannot control the editorial, the ideas that are there, right? Uh, and therefore, availability for everyone concerned is the third very, I think, very, very important issue that needs to be held, uh, needs to be there. So I think these are the three main issues, yeah? Independence, challenging norms, and being freely available for the rest of the people. I think we should start from that notion that is a hands-off for governments and pressure groups and so on and so forth, but they can come into the picture in discussions, in debates and so on and so forth, yeah, within that kind of public service media. That was Professor Zaharum Nain of the University of Nottingham, Malaysia. One of the biggest game changers for the media industry could be the introduction of an independent Malaysian media council, which is a proposal that has been mooted for many years. Dr. Benjamin Lowe, senior lecturer at Taylor's University, makes a strong case for why the government should expedite setting up this media council. You've been a vocal proponent for the setting up of a Malaysian media council. Why do you see this institution as vital for the country's media ecosystem? So there are generally a few different ways to sort of like regulate the media, you know. Uh, regulating the media is often seen as a very problematic um, approach, especially if you come from a very libertarian kind of mindset. When you hear the word regulate, you, that often means government interference. And in uh, libertarian uh, media uh, philosophies, that is seen as an, uh, a huge uh, no, no, to a certain extent. The view from the libertarian side is that the media are the only, are only able to sort of be critical of the government if the government cannot censor or interfere in that way as well. So um, in light of that, the only way to really regulate the media is through a form of self-regulation. That's where the media council comes in. You know, it's comprised of people, uh, of members that come from the media, from, you know, civil society, from the public, and you can even have representatives from the government, but the government does not control the council in that sense. So uh, the idea here is that this allows the media to self-regulate itself, meaning that the media organizations that recognize that are seen as the media can then define what are the standards, what are the code of ethics, and what are the practices that reflect what a reputable news organization should be doing. And then every sort of like news outlet agrees that we will follow by these standards and rules. And that allows for if there's any media outlet that sort of like does things that steps out of line, that doesn't do things in the way that is prescribed or breaks any of these sort of like a code of ethics. And then the media council can then meet up punishments or to force the media outlet to sort of like um, fix their way of working things or to censure them in a very different way as well. So that's really the how the media council is supposed to work in that sense. So the idea is that the media players themselves make up the rules that um, that they all agree to. The idea is everybody has buy-in into what the uh, regulatory environment is. But how will we then ensure that uh, the uh, environment has, is, I guess, a sufficient standard um, for, for the public benefit? Is that where the government then steps in to ensure that uh, it is of that standard? I would say that the government does play a role in ensuring that, but this is where civil society organizations and also even uh, sort of like acad academics or scholars, they will come in, you know, they will bring in, uh, these are best practices from other countries that have sort of like executed very well done media councils and see what are the best ways to sort of like engage in this issue. And I think part of it is also because in Malaysia, a lot of our uh, local journalists don't really have any sort of like standardized rule or sort of like a standardized code of ethics, you know, different uh, journalists, um, unions and organizations, different media companies all have their own respective sets of code of ethics, none of which are the same and all have different varying levels of, you know, quality and values and uh, respect towards certain ways in which um, journalism practices are looked at as well. So I think that's really going to be the biggest issue as well, which is why whatever media council that is sort of developed in Malaysia, 
it can, it should not reflect the current standards of journalism in the country because the way that journalism has operated in this country has always been under a sort of like a very oppressive purview. You know, there are so many laws here that restrict media freedoms and the ways that journalists operate. And as such, journalists have sort of like evolved in a way where they only know how to operate under those very, very uh, extreme situations. And so a media council that reflects those values is not going to do any much better. So if, in fact, the media council should actually be aspirational in the way that it presents its code of ethics, that these are what we hope that the media is going to rise up to as a result of that. We've been looking at the issue of um, disinformation, especially on social media during the election season. And um, you've been calling for a media council as one of the ways to counter this disinformation. I take it that the way this is done is by creating a a media environment that uh, people actually trust in more so than social media sources. Is that how it would work? Is that how it would strengthen uh, media integrity? Yes, in theory, that's what it would work because the idea here is that in uh, if you have a country that has a very um, powerful and very uh, reputable and credible media, people will naturally gravitate towards them to sort of see, okay, this is a this is an article that I can trust to be accurate. I can trust that it's fact it's factual, and I trust that it's been vetted and is going to be correct. In Malaysia people do actually have those sort of like uh, values of media. You know, if you ask any English speaking person, uh, sort of, if you ask people who live in KL, very likely they'll say, okay, I think Malaysia Kini or the star is going to be quite reputable. Um, if you ask people who are Malay speaking, they have a different set of, of, of new sites that they refer to as well. Problem is that we don't have any standardized one. So different, um, depending on which sort of like language sphere that you're in, you're going to have different levels of standards and values as a result of that. So that's one of the big problems that we have. So by having a media council, you can then sort of like create this environment where the media actually sort of like regulate themselves, they follow a standard set of practices that will elevate the quality of all news coverage across the board and not just with specific media outlets as well. And that in itself allows people to be, okay, I'm, even though I may only say, list, uh, like consume news from say English media or Malay language media or even Chinese language media, but I know that they all have the same standards so that it doesn't matter whether Um, if I'm in this specific bubble because the quality of news is going to be roughly the same at the very least. That was Dr. Benjamin Loh of Taylor's University. The new leadership at the Ministry of Communications and Digital has given encouraging signals that they intend to pursue this and other reforms. Stay tuned as we follow up on these developments in the coming year. This has been Pressing Matters on the Morning Run. Coming up next is the 10 a.m. News Bulletin followed by Enterprise. BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.